All right, let's get into Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 66. That's our text. Open your Bible, navigate on your device so that you can follow along. Very important, I think, that you follow along and see what's being said and why it's being said. We also have our transcript available if you'd like to follow along there. It's got the text in it, uh, transcript at Calvary. Well, I, I never remember that. Anyway, talk to Gene. He'll tell you how to get to the transcript. Just go to our app and you can find the transcript there. Uh, the topic in our text this morning, Matthew tells us that when Jesus was crucified, graves were opened and afterward many bodies of the saints were raised. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't, <laughs> I can't believe I can't remember that web address ever. I'm just, I'm a loser. <laughs> but you knew that, yeah, I'm just catching up to that. So many bodies of the saints were raised. The title of our message, come out, come out, resurrected you are. Let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> Father, thank you for our morning, and uh, Lord, we want to be reverent as we see you on the cross, dying on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the text you've chosen for us this morning. I want to have the sense, Lord, that, that it is uh, not random, nor is this gathering. Though maybe we've been coming for years and we would have come anyway, nevertheless, we have to have the sense that this morning is the morning you have brought us here to speak to us to show us, Lord, how deep and wide and great your love is for us, how marvelous is your forgiveness, how wonderful is your grace. If there's anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, draw them to you by bands of love. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. I say grim reaper, and you immediately see a skeletal figure carrying a large scythe clothed in a black cloth with a hood, a cloak rather with a hood, hourglass in his hand, waiting for the last drop of sand to fall. That image has been the personification of death in the Western world since at least the 15th century. In literature or on film, he sometimes disguises himself so as to sneak up on those whose souls he's come to reap. In the classic Twilight Zone episode, Nothing in the Dark, an old woman has been avoiding the Grim Reaper by living as a recluse, refusing to open her door. The Reaper, played by handsome aspiring actor Robert Redford, tricks her into letting him in by pretending to be a wounded policeman, and he eventually takes her off with him. Now, the Bible personifies death, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, death is described as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Revelation 6, 8, so I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death and by the beasts of the earth. The Apostle Paul personifies death at least two times in 1 Corinthians 15. First, in verse 26, he writes, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And a little later, in verse 55, he quotes the Old Testament and personally addresses the last enemy, saying, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Death is not directly personified in our text in Matthew, but he describes some incredible events that occurred at the moment the Lord died, each one showing death's defeat. 
The religious leaders, fearing Jesus might somehow be shown to be alive, put themselves in the awkward position of defending death. They place a seal and a guard on his tomb, hoping Jesus would stay put. I want to live knowing death has been defeated, not defending it and living in fear. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your enemy death was defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. And number two, your enemy death could not be defended at the tomb of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look first of all, verses 45 through 53, at death's defeat. Now we're always so anxious to get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can overlook the effects of his death on the cross. We're told that it was at the cross when he died that Jesus, quote, disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's from Colossians 2.15, speaking of just his work on the cross. Sure, the cross was necessary to get to the resurrection, but it was more than just a means to that end. The cross itself was a victory in God's long spiritual warfare with Satan. And so we pick up the text in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. There's some evidence in secular history of this darkness. Early church leaders Origen and Eusebius quoted words from Phlegon, a Roman historian, in which he made mention of an extraordinary solar eclipse as well as of an earthquake about the time of the crucifixion. Since it was Passover, and Passover always occurs on the calendar when the moon is full, it's really not possible that this was a natural event like a solar eclipse. Uh, Historians would have called it that perhaps, but it couldn't have been a solar eclipse. It had to be supernatural. This was a supernatural darkness that God brought on the land. And then there's a discussion as to whether it was just the land of Israel or did it go beyond that and how far beyond, we just don't know. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was put on the cross about 9 a.m. The darkness began at high noon. Then after a total of six hours on the cross, at the ninth hour of the day, as the Jews reckoned time, which would be 3 p.m., he cried out and he dismissed his own spirit. Now, you might recognize these words as the opening line of Psalm 22. They are. There's a tradition that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then recited the whole psalm and perhaps all the subsequent psalms until you get to Psalm 31, verse 5, which reads, into your hand I commit my spirit. And so it's very possible, we can't say for sure one way or the other, uh, but we know uh, oftentimes scripture doesn't give us the whole story, obviously, and it's very possible by comparing Jesus' seven sayings on the cross uh, that he read from Psalm 22, verse one, all the way through, or read, not, excuse me, recited from Psalm 22, verse one, all the way to Psalm 31, verse five. Now, the question always is, did the Father really forsake Jesus on the cross? Is that why there were three hours of darkness? Well, here's what I want to point out. A little later in the psalm, in uh, Psalm 22, and in verse 24, same psalm, you read this. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. 
In his humanity, Jesus certainly would have felt forsaken on the cross. There are times you and I as human beings, do you not feel forsaken by God in the sense that you're wondering why God isn't answering your prayer? Where is God when it hurts? Why isn't he doing anything? There's that sense of abandonment. But you know in your heart that the Lord said he would what? Never leave you or forsake you, not ever. You just are struggling with your situation. The Psalm itself indicates Jesus was unforsaken by his Father. We're doing a series right now on Wednesday night, three-part series on Psalm 22. If you wanna get deeper into this, uh, go online and you can read the transcripts or you can listen to those studies as they progress. Now, I don't pretend to know what was occurring in the dark for those three hours, but I've come to question any emotional over-preaching of the forsakenness of Jesus. It's more on point to realize that Psalm 22, written about a thousand years prior to the crucifixion, describes what was happening to Jesus on the cross in detail, even quoting some of the words the people in the crowd would be shouting out. Jesus was letting the people know that the cross was no accident or afterthought, it was an integral part of the plan of redemption, and he was calling their attention as a sermon, as it were, to that psalm so that they could be mind blown. And imagine being at the cross, reviling Jesus, seeing all that was taking place, being reminded of Psalm 22, which you had, most Jews had memorized most of the Bible, uh, their Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, we think that you know, these ancient people were stupid, uh, but in many ways, they had it over on us. They, they would memorize uh, everything, and they would know, and if they hadn't memorized it, they'd hear Jesus reciting it, and some of the words they were actually saying at the foot of the cross were in that psalm, and it would have been mind-blowing, or so you would think. Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. They misheard his words and thought he was calling upon the Old Testament prophet Elijah to come save him. Now, it's not because Jesus was mumbling because in a minute, even after he'd been on the cross longer, we're gonna see that he shouted at the end. They misunderstood his Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani for him calling out to Elijah. Jesus' illustrated sermon from Psalm 22 was wasted on at least some of the crowd. They weren't really listening. They had already made up their minds about Jesus and they filled in the blanks with their own ideas. Do you ever wonder how people can hear the word and not get saved. Have you ever been in a service where you brought somebody that you know isn't a Christian or you know somebody's there who's not saved and you think, this is the day. You're talking right to that person. This is it. I don't know what's holding them in their seat. And then the service ends and nothing happens. Or how believers can listen to a Bible study but then go away totally unaffected has no relationship to their life whatsoever, and maybe for years they, they live kind of as halfway disciples. Well, if people in that crowd at the cross could hear Psalm 22 and see Jesus actually 
living it out and read in it words they themselves were predicted to say over a thousand years earlier, it shouldn't surprise us as people today harden their hearts. And really the hardest substance known to man is the human heart. Not a diamond, not any of these other things, it's the human heart. God's word is powerful, it does divide between the soul and the spirit, but we need ears to hear it, we need to develop a greater humility in listening to it. John in his gospel tells us that Jesus said, I thirst, and that that was the reason the soaked sponge was offered to alleviate him from being so parched. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. After being beaten by the Jews, scourged by the Romans, and been on the cross for six hours, you'd not expect Jesus to be able to cry out with a loud voice. You wouldn't expect him to cry out at all. By now, he should have drifted off into a shock-induced coma. It was to show us his complete command of this situation. No one took his life. He laid it down voluntarily. Why did it end at precisely 3 p.m.? The timing was perfect. Jesus dismissed his spirit and he died exactly as the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple. In a few hours, on the third day, Jesus would rise from the dead, but his death had already defeated death. Matthew makes that clear by relating a few things that happened right as Jesus died. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Properly understood, the temple is two rooms called the holy place or the sanctuary and the holiest of all. The book of Hebrews describes those two rooms this way. It says, for a temple was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and beyond the second veil, the part of the temple which is called the holiest of all. When we think of the temple, we think of that model in Israel of Herod's temple. It's a, that magnificent structure with its walls and its colonnades and its courts and all that. But the temple itself, what, what was actually the temple, were two small rooms separated by a curtain in which the high priest did his work. The holiest of all, also called the Holy of Holies, was where the presence of God was supposed to dwell. It was only entered once each year on the Day of Atonement entered by the high priest who would approach God, as it were, with an offering of blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, I said it was where the presence of God was supposed to dwell because after the destruction of Solomon's temple, you have to realize the Ark of the Covenant with its lid, called the mercy seat, was no longer in the temple. It was no longer in the Holy of Holies. It was lost to history and it remains lost to history. You can watch hundreds of specials and read dozens of books about where is the ark. Everybody has a theory. It was not in Herod's temple. Uh, we think that one tradition is that just before the Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah uh, smuggled it out of the temple and hid it either under the temple or somewhere else. The Ethiopians say they have it uh, in a like a little chapel that they're keeping it in. They won't let anybody see it. Uh, there's all kinds of theories. Some people say it was brought to the new world. That's crazy. Uh, it's lost to history, but it wasn't there. And so uh, the high priest, when he went in, just giving you the visual, he didn't have that to look at. Now to access the Holy of Holies, though, you pass through a veil that kept that room separate. 
It was quite the curtain. It wasn't like a cafe curtain like you buy at Walmart. It was 60 feet by 30 feet, at least four inches thick with 72 pleats. Josephus remarked that two teams of horses, if they were tied to either end of the curtain, would not be able to tear it apart. Ever seen those guys who tear up phone books? No, I don't know, you couldn't tear the curtain. Humanly speaking, it was impossible. Yet the precise moment Jesus dismissed his spirit and died, the precise moment he offered himself as the final lamb of God, it was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that God reached down from heaven and tore the veil, opening up the way into the holy of holies. The book of Hebrews puts it like this, there is no longer an offering for sin, therefore brethren having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. When Jesus died in his flesh on the cross, the veil was destroyed and God was saying, through Jesus Christ, you can approach me directly. There is no other mediator between God and man other than Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, the need for all further sacrifice ended. Think of it this way too. Just as the priests were about to sacrifice the Passover lambs, the darkness over all the land suddenly ended, and when they looked behind them, they could see into the Holy of Holies through the torn veil. This was a big deal. You weren't supposed to, nobody, this wasn't like the circus where kids would peek under it to see what was going on, or like you, you know, park, you ever park behind the drive-in theater? Maybe you never did this here in, in Armona, but when I was a kid down in San Bernardino, we would watch movies from behind the drive-in. You couldn't hear them, but who cared? You know, and, and stuff. And so this wasn't that kind of, you didn't peek into the Holy of Holies. You didn't look in there. It was off limits. And yet, all of a sudden, what happens? The lights go on, as it were, and the curtain is drawn, and you see that you can have access to the presence of God. It's a very dramatic moment in the history of redemption. Why was there ever a need for sacrifice in the first place? Well, in the Holy of Holies used to be the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat lid. Inside the Ark were several items, primarily the two tablets of the law of God. The law of God condemns us as sinners and the wages of sin is death. Only by the blood sacrifice of a substitute could sin be covered for a brief period of time. The Apostle Paul explained it this way, saying, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. In other words, the law reveals that you're a sinner and that you deserve to die. Because of what Jesus did, dying as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we are no longer under the condemnation of the law which requires our death. The torn veil, among other things, tells us that death is defeated because we are not condemned by the law, but are set free to live by the law of love enabled by the grace of God. Matthew provides more evidence that death is defeated. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
Rocks were split and the graves were opened. In other words, the earth quaked in order that graves would be opened as a show of victory over death. This is a physical way to show that there has been a victory over death by cracking open the graves. If there was any question about the meaning of the quake-opened graves, there was a resurrection of certain saints from the dead. Now the question is always asked, did these rise from the dead only to die again? There had been many resurrections in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember he stood outside the tomb four days after he dead? He, he did, four days after he had died. <laughs> It's not really that funny, but anyway. <laughs> I'm not gonna do what I wanna do, but anyway. Uh, four days after he died and he called his name and he came out of the grave. But the religious leaders wanted to put him to death. They wanted to kill him again and he did have to die again. So is that what happened to these guys? Well, no, certainly not because that would ruin the typology. Jesus is called the first fruits of them that slept. He was the first to rise from the dead in a glorified body, never to die again. If these token saints rose only to die again, that wouldn't show us anything about the resurrection. That would be lame in modern terms. These rose in glorified bodies, never to die again. But notice carefully, Matthew says they came out of their graves after Jesus' resurrection. They did not precede him. They could not precede him who must be the first among many. So the graves cracked open and then the Jews wouldn't have gone into the graveyard to deal with this because the Sabbath was approaching until uh, Sunday anyway. But by Sunday, Jesus had risen from the dead and others rose after him. By the way, according to the Jewish calendar, Passover is on the 14th of the month called Nisan. It is followed by a Sabbath on 15 Nisan. Then on Sunday, 16 Nisan is what is called first fruits. Jesus rose from the dead on first fruits as the first fruits of the resurrection, and many saints rose with him as first fruits. And so that feast was fulfilled. By the way, some Messianic Jews point out that Jesus in his first, com uh, first coming fulfilled all of the spring feasts on the Jewish calendar. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits were all taking place at that time, and then 40 days later, or 50 days later, excuse me, I was a heretic first service, I said 40. 50 days later, uh, I'm correcting myself for Lighthouse Trails, uh, but uh, 50 days later, uh, the, the spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, so all of the spring feasts are fulfilled. And the Messianic Jews say, Jesus will fulfill all of the fall feasts as well. You know, we wanna always be careful not to be setting dates, right? Because people who, especially people who don't like people like us who talk about prophecy a lot, they're always listening to, did he set a date? Did he say Jesus was coming at a certain time? Because if he did, he's a heretic. Well, we're not setting dates, but it is interesting to me, and it's undeniable, number one, the Jews could have known the exact day Jesus would enter Jerusalem because it had been given to them by Daniel, the prophet, in the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Jesus fulfilled all of the spring feasts on their calendar dates. You have to expect that he's going to do the same in the fall feasts. 
What became of the resurrected saints? Well, we're not told, but obviously they went to heaven at some point after they've been seen in Jerusalem. Let's review death's defeat at the cross. Torn veil, death is defeated since I no longer have to pay the wages of sin, which is death. Quake opened graves, death is defeated since the graves are open, signifying that those buried there are destined to rise. Raised saints, death is defeated because if I'm a believer, I will one day be raised in a glorified body that is fit for eternity. Thus we say that death is defeated at the cross. Not yet destroyed, we'll come to that as we close, but certainly defeated. Death is an incredible enemy. Knowing he is defeated strengthens and encourages us even as people still die and even as we may die. Paul applied the victory over death by saying in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's what I think Paul was getting at. Have you ever heard the saying, when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose? Well, the truth is, if you're a believer, you've got everything, spiritually speaking. You have eternal life. Rewards are stored up for you in heaven where nothing can steal or corrupt them. The promise that you might never die if you're raptured, but that you'll be resurrected if you do die. All of these things belong to you. The fact that death is defeated leads us to say, when you've got everything, then you've got nothing to lose. Whether you live or whether you die, you do it as unto the Lord. We say, don't fear the reaper. And so number two, your enemy death could not be defended at the tomb of Jesus Christ. Matthew highlights a few things to show Jesus was dead, not just mostly dead. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, and the things that had happened. They feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. Did this centurion get saved? Maybe, hopefully, but commentators note that he is quoted as saying this was the Son of God, uh, not this is the Son of God. So we don't know if he got saved or not. We can hope that he did. I think it's more a declaration to tell us that Jesus was dead. If you die in Kings County, the sheriff is the coroner who will examine your death and provide the death certificate. The centurion in charge of Jesus' crucifixion was the coroner of that day. He knew death, and he knew death by crucifixion. When he said this was, he was pronouncing that Jesus was dead beyond a doubt. So whatever he was saying spiritually about who Jesus was, he was pronouncing that person dead. Verse 55, many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now also at the cross, we're told, were the apostle John, Jesus' mother Mary, and her sister. They were looking on from afar, not because of fear, they weren't hiding, they were there, the soldiers would establish a reasonable perimeter and there was quite a crowd of haters and, and um, they didn't want to get swallowed up in that crowd. Verse 57, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a linen cloth he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. 
The bodies of crucified criminals were usually left on their cross to be torn apart by scavenger birds. Jews were under obligation from the law of God to not let a dead body remain out overnight, but being crucified as a criminal, they probably would have thrown Jesus' body into the dump. It was a miraculous fulfillment of Bible prophecy, Isaiah 53, verse nine to be exact, that Joseph came forward. Isaiah said he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 700 years before it occurred, Isaiah saw Jesus would be dying on the cross, a criminal's death, but buried in a rich man's tomb. How often does that happen? Never. It was just another of the nearly 30 Bible prophecies fulfilled at the cross. Now the Sabbath was fast approaching when Jesus could do, or Jews, excuse me, could do no work, so they hastily prepared the body of Jesus for entombment. Even though time was limited, there was enough time and enough contact with his body for them to know that he was really dead. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. The day after, beginning sundown Friday, was a Sabbath. These guys were violating the Sabbath by meeting together and by meeting with Pilate. They were hypocrites, as all legalists ultimately must be. They said, sir, we remember when he was alive how the deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. They'd been listening to Jesus' sermon tapes. They understood his claim to rise from the dead, perhaps more clearly than the disciples. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, if you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. These guys didn't realize it at that time, but they were helping to prove that Jesus was really dead and really rose from the dead. One of the theories to explain the resurrection and say that it was a myth propagated by the disciples was to say that they stole his body. But this guard and this seal were especially set to thwart just that possibility. They were sealing their own doom, as it were. Another theory was that Jesus was only mostly dead and recovered while he was in the tomb. And then he somehow unwrapped himself and then somehow rolled away the stone from inside and escaped without the guards noticing or the seal being disturbed. And so you see, these guys ruined it for themselves. If they were smart, they would have set up to, they would have stolen his body themselves instead of trying to keep him dead. They killed all hope that they could be uh, right. Now, these guys were in the unenviable position of trying to defend death. Instead of being excited by the possibility that if Jesus rose, they too might one day rise, they wanted him to stay dead. And I know they didn't believe in Jesus. I know they hated Jesus. But they're thinking, hey, this guy said he's gonna rise in three days and we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Shouldn't there be some thought that maybe if this guy actually rises from the dead, we should have a new worldview? Maybe we'd want to change our mind about a couple of things. But instead, they're doing everything to keep Jesus dead. Death was their champion. They were betting on him in this fight for the bodies and souls of men. They, the odds in Vegas were on death as far as they were concerned. 
They were fans cheering for the reaper, but they didn't realize death had already been defeated on the cross. It was only a matter of hours when on the third day on first fruits, Jesus would rise and with him the token saints that declare our future rapture or resurrection. Now I wanna return to the very important fact that although defeated, death has not been destroyed, not yet, in that we all still die. We live in that time between the two comings of Jesus. I've explained it many times before by comparing it to World War II and the Normandy invasion on D-Day. D-Day was a resounding victory for the Allied forces. It effectively marked the end of World War II in Europe. But the Axis troops fought on until one day short of one year later. Satan and his malevolent foes fight on. Death is defeated, but casualties are real and they are severe. Death takes people, but we would say not in the same way. We are confident, we are convinced that for believers to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. If I live, that's great. If I die, that's greater. One day, death will be totally destroyed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, those who are Christ that is coming, speaking of the resurrection. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The death of death is described this way in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 20. Then death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death has been defeated, not yet destroyed. We live in the hope and the confidence that that brings us as believers in Jesus Christ. You've got everything, and therefore you have nothing to lose but everything to gain. It's why Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We can't do anything, not really, about our dying. But we can live in Christ and for Christ, serving him without defending death in the sense of living in fear of death. Whatever life, whatever time, whatever health I have, it belongs to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he must therefore be the sole person that I live for. Let's pray.